Welcome to Prime Video's culture-rated collection. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we don't jump through hoops just to hear our voice and can fall in love with illuminating documentaries like Giannis' The Marvelous Journey. I'm just a hard worker that's trying to survive. Enjoy the animated series, The Second Best Hospital in the Galaxy. All doctors report immediately. Where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Welcome home, baby! Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. I want my music to unify people. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop. This is the cleanest police car I've ever been in in my life. And BMF. You're about to take over the whole nation. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. This is On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink, mom of four boys. And I'm Janet Allison, teacher of many more. Thanks for joining us as we share real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Haya Health. I always used to get sick the week after our high school musical. Now that I'm a nurse and a health writer, I understand why. Lack of sleep, lack of proper nutrition, and stress all interfere with the ability of our immune systems to function optimally. If you worry about your boy's nutrition and sleep and stress, consider adding Haya Health vitamins to your daily routine. These chewable vitamins contain 15 essential vitamins and minerals known to support a healthy immune system. Use our discount code on boys to get 50% off your first order. Go to HayaHealth.com and enter discount code on boys to save 50%. Many of you know that I was a teacher back in the mid 90s with a class full of boys and that I hadn't a clue how to communicate with them, let alone teach them anything. I'd start the day feeling confident and enthusiastic, only to bump up against resistance, silence, or worst, complete refusal to cooperate. I'd end the day feeling defeated, frustrated, and quite irritable. Perhaps you've felt this way as a parent too. You try so hard to connect with him, to start deep, meaningful conversations with him that go nowhere, and you wonder, what's wrong with you? But you might also be wondering, what's wrong with him? Our guest today is a psychologist and author and is here to reassure us that there's nothing wrong with any of us. He's here to help us crack the boy code, which also happens to be the name of one of his many important books, books that have helped thousands and thousands of parents and teachers worldwide understand what makes boys tick. Welcome, Dr. Adam Cox. Thank you. Glad to be here. They should just hand out this book when one of us births or adopts a boy. Yes. How helpful would that be? (laughs) That would be amazing because I'll tell you what, my copy, I always read with a pen in my hand and my copy of this book, Adam, is looks like this. Every 
every other sentence, every paragraph, I've got stars, I've got circles. It is so packed with valuable information about how, how to understand and talk with boys. So give us a little background. I know you you have been working with boys and that shows up so richly in this book. And I know you have other books too, but this is the one that really connected me with you and your wisdom. Well, I started working with boys about, uh, you know, 25 years ago in my clinical practice. You know, it began even before that because, you know, way back in the day, Allison, I had gone to art school and was living in New York City trying to make my way as an artist. And I lived on a street where most of the kids spoke only Spanish and I didn't speak Spanish. And I was trying to connect with the kids. And I began inviting them into my studio to learn how to paint and draw. And I had a complete kind of reversal, like a, like a deep sense of calling in my life that there was something else that I needed to do. And in a matter of months, I made a decision to go back to graduate school and to become a psychologist so that I could spend my life working with kids. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And when I opened my clinical practice, one of the things that became clear to me is that the boys in my community were really needing some place to go where they could kind of feel like themselves, where they could connect with someone who had an appreciation of what their natural instincts and orientations mm -hmm. were. And so you know, in some ways, I just did it kind of pragmatically, you know, focusing on boys because there needed to be that kind of a place. And then over the course of some years working with boys, I started to develop some different kinds of techniques and approaches for helping them to engage in therapy. And anybody that has worked with boys in therapy or any parent that has brought their son to therapy knows <laughs> that it's very difficult to get them to engage. And often there's a lot of kind of quiet conversations between therapist and parent about what can we do to get him to open up? And there's just this feeling that, okay, he has so much to share, but he's not sharing it. And how can we better make that happen? So I began writing about the kinds of things that I was doing in therapy with kids. And um, then I have had the great privilege of, of being able to travel around the world and give talks about boys. And at one point was commissioned to do a two-year global study uh, by the International Boys Schools Coalition, uh, meeting with boys from places Africa, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand, and all over North America, parts of Asia, talking with boys about where they get a sense of purpose and meaning. That was a really unique project. And mm -hmm. one of the things that has shaped my focus and understanding of boys forever is this sense of what their personal priorities are. I thought it was a very yeah. unique opportunity. So so here I am and I'm still writing about these things and, and talking <laughs> with good folks like you and uh, like your listeners. And, and so, you know, all the better. Because boys are endlessly fascinating and amazingly similar across the world. Yes. There are a lot of strong commonalities, and that's one of the things that I saw is that, you know, sometimes people think that, well, you're going to do a big study that involves a lot of kids from different cultures, different socioeconomic groups, and you want to be focused on what are the differences. And sure enough, yeah, there were some differences, but I was mostly interested in, well, what are the commonalities? What is mm -hmm. this common language and set of priorities that boys are focused on that, um, we can we can all speak to in our in our way of parenting or teaching them. 
So briefly, what did you find? Because so often, especially as mothers, you know, Janet and I are both mothers and so many uh, also teachers of boys are females. Like we don't have insight into boy world, boy psychology, what they're thinking, what they're prioritizing, what they're feeling until we maybe have boys and if we carefully pay attention and then we make a lot of mistakes and assumptions along the way. What did you find is that commonality between boys worldwide looking for purpose and priority? Well, you know, Jen, I spent two years doing the study and then I spent the better part of a year writing the results of the study. So it would be hard for me to encapsulate (laughs) even just the nuggets of what I've learned in just this, this short conversation. But there are, there are many important things. And I would say that one of the most important and one of the things that I like to always address, you know, right up front when talking to parents is that the highest priority of boys is their happiness. And that might sound like, well, we would already know that. But I ask, you know, relative to things like your sense of popularity or your sense of success, this is a big Uh, distinction. The distinction between success and happiness is very important to understand in the parenting of boys because very often parents are focused on success, whereas what boys are thinking is, I want to be happy. And so that causes us to kind of go down different roads and have some conflicts and not necessarily, you know, be talking about the same thing. So that that kind of uh, issue, very important, is like happiness And the second thing that I would mention, which is just of almost, it's impossible to overstate the importance of this, is to have at a relatively younger age than most of us would think, a sense of purpose and a sense of being able to make a tangible contribution to the life of your family, your community, your school, whatever it might be. The boys want to feel as though they are needed to do some kind of important work. That makes their life larger, their world larger, and kind of gives them a sense of, you know, a, a, a kind of critical sense of achievement that is essential to their esteem. And I'm glad you said it starts earlier than we think, because it does start with that little two-year-old toddler bringing in the groceries for mom or carrying that big, heavy thing for mom and builds from there. So that acknowledgement and that opening that we allow them to to serve, basically. That's right on. Uh, That's exactly right, Allison, is that um, often, for example, you mentioned in your intro that you had been a teacher, and so you might know this from your years teaching, but... I do many consults with schools uh, about, you know, boys that won't settle down or boys that don't want to follow the the rules of their classroom and so forth. And I think that often we we should do something that is counterintuitive because the way that we deal with misbehaving boys the world over is we ratchet down on their freedoms. We take freedom away or privileges away. We say, okay, now you can't do this. Now you can't do that. And I think instead that we should have a a kind of a counterintuitive approach and we should try to, you know, if we imagine ourselves being the management, we should try to kind of get them to ally themselves with us. And so one of the best ways to do that with boys, for example, in a classroom is to give them an important job because once they become allied with the teacher in having to do something to help care for the class and the kind of, you know, the, the running of the classroom, it makes them feel important. And it, it often kind of inclines them to then be cooperative in other ways. The same thing, by the way, is true with coaches. Those people mm-hmm. that coach boys in different kinds of sports and will often have a very talented 
child who could be a great athlete, make a, a stunning contribution to the team, but has a hard time coming into the fold because he has this sense that I have to kind of be of some special importance. And we, mm -hmm. if we get into a moral conflict with that child, like I'm gonna show you that you're not that important, or I'm gonna try to you know, prove to you that I'm the boss here, it just backfires on us. And it's much better to kind of invite their leadership in a way that kind of suits them. So th those are just very important things. Uh, no question, jobs for kids, but you know, younger than six years old, very important. Mm -hmm. I feel like I see this all the time when I talk to parents of teenage boys and hear from the teenage boys themselves, these points that you've made come into conflict. You have the parents who are prioritizing the son's success, often at this point defined by school grades and whether they're doing their schoolwork. You have a boy who cares about his happiness, which can vary depending on the boy and what brings him happiness. You have boys who are wired. They want to contribute. They want to make a difference in the world. And they have been in classrooms for 10 plus years with people telling them, sit down, shut up, do what I tell you to do. Yeah. And then people wonder why they're unmotivated and upset. And had a pandemic. Yeah. And there you go. It's a mess. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, our primary message to, to boys, unfortunately, is often sit in your seat um, you know, stay in your chair, pay attention, work as hard as you possibly can so that you're going to get perhaps one of the existentially vacuous jobs that is life's reward. <laughs> <laughs> if we're battling this um, when kids are age 17, okay, that's, that's one thing because then they are kind of at one of those critical forks in the road about what am I going to major in in college and am I going to go to college and all those kinds of things. But we ought to be looking at those questions at a much younger age because I think kids are ready to engage those things. Now, not every child is at the same point. I can recall that at eight years old, I went to Staples and made my own son a little nameplate to kind of wear when he came to help me in the office, you know, and I, I made a little job title that said creativity specialist and then gave him a small budget to go buy some toys for the waiting room of my office that would be appropriate Perfect. to use toys. So, I mean, really loved the kind of idea of being in charge of that budget, of making these kind of executive decisions. So the jobs are not always chores, right? One of the critical distinctions that we have to make is there's a difference between what I call purposeful work and a chore. We all do chores to help make our families run, to keep our households going, our classrooms going. It's appropriate and good that we contribute to those things. But when you do some type of purposeful work, you're taking on some type of challenge that speaks to your personal self, that's an expression of your abilities and your interests. And so it really kind of brings that into the fore. And uh, that's the kind of thing that we should be looking for. What kinds of things can we give kids, even at a relatively young age, where they have some decision-making decision capability and where they are able to kind of exercise, you know, um, a sense of their own judgment and preferences, those kinds of things. We see this in our own lives. That distinction you made is why I am excited about and eager to jump online and record this podcast with you and Janet 
And I am just sort of overlooking the dirt and the dirty dishes in my kitchen at the moment. That is a chore. That is not an expression of my purpose in the world. And it's not the best use of my talents, frankly, either. Well, I, I think that's right. The, you know, I mean, you, you don't do a podcast like this if you're not called by a sense of purpose to, you know, to really talk about something important. And I'm fortunate in that I feel the same way, you know, about my work. And it's interesting when we talk about this, because, you know, when you talk to boys about the kinds of things that they might like to do when they're an adult, one of the occupations that comes up very frequently, which we might not be surprised by, is that of being a teacher. And why is it that boys so often talk about wanting to be teachers? And I think it's because that a lot of kids feel the sense of affection and acknowledgement and care that is present in a school, and it makes them feel very good. And they feel like, well, this is kind of like a universe that I could exist in. I like being here, and I like the vibe that's kind of in the air when I'm in my school, and I would want to be a part of something like this. But remember that they also have other references for what work is like for people. And so they're yeah. comparing these things, right? You know, they were saying, hey, not everybody feels like this about work. So let I feel like we're kind of like up in the sky and, and lofty notions, which are very, very um, important. But I'm thinking about the moms that I talk to that can't get their boys to talk if they try to figure out what their son's passion and purpose was in life. It would be playing video games and avoiding school remote learning as much as possible or turning in, you know, half done homework. Part of the reason why I love your book, Cracking the Boy Code, is because it really is specific about how to talk with your boys, how to get them to open up. And one of the things that really struck me is you talk about form and content and communication and so much with all the remote learning, the parents that I'm talking to, when we reflect, it's so much transactional conversation right now. Did you finish that assignment? It's time to get online. It's, you know, time to get off video games, whatever. And, and so there's the content, but also talk about the form of communication and why it is so important for our boys. Okay, so, you know, this is a critical issue, and that's why I put it right up in the front of the book, because this is like, you know, you can't put the cart before the horse, right? This is the critical stuff. Your vocal tone, a parent's vocal tone, is the most important signal that you send about what your particular state of mind is, what your disposition mm -hmm. is at any particular time. And kids, of course, learn to decode that tone over time in a very masterful way because they have a high degree of investment in what your mood and attitude <laughs> is about things. They, they need to understand and to know that. So they listen very carefully. And of course they combine that vocal tone with you know elements of your facial expression so that they get kind of like the better picture of like what's going on. So we should use that vocal tone in a very strategic way. And in my book, I call that task tone. And I want to be real clear about what this is, because one thing that I realized way back in the, you know, 20 some years ago, researching boys and looking at some of the, the um, neuropsychological differences in, in boys is that all of us are processing language in the left hemisphere of our brain. That's where we do our, our kind of all of our receptive language. 
And our right hemisphere is where we do a lot of the social perceptual uh, skills that let us know how to understand the nonverbal elements of a situation. And boys struggle with that kind of right hemisphere detection part. So I kind of recommend this task tone so that we kind of speak more directly to that part of them that can kind of hear these strong signals. So for example, taking some emotion out of your voice when you want to make a point. I am not advocating talking like a drill sergeant or being authoritarian with kids, anything but that. But what I am advocating is removing those kinds of signals that confuse them about what the most important thing is to, to hear or to attend to in a particular conversation. This episode is sponsored by By Heart. Babies need to eat. And whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about By Heart Baby Formula. By Heart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk. And Byheart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on Byheart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only U.S.-made infant formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Byheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code on boys at byheart.com. That's B-Y-H-E-A-R-T.com slash podcast. And it is 10% off your first order. Byheart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. We all know that vitamins can help fill nutritional gaps in our diet. But a lot of us don't like to take vitamins because we don't like swallowing pills. How do you feel about that, Janet? There's some days that I look at my vitamins and go, yeah, I should take those. I'll do it later. But I'll tell you what's changed. I have gotten easy melt vitamins. I have the D3 and I have the B12s and a multivitamin and I just pop them in my mouth and they dissolve and I don't have to think about swallowing a vitamin. And you don't necessarily need water either to have on hand to get this big vitamin now. Yeah, no. And they taste good and they're sugar-free. They melt quickly. The reason they melt is because of plants, not chemicals. Ah, plant-based nutrition. For a limited time only, you can receive a free, free three-month supply of Easy Melt Vitamin D3 with your first purchase. To claim your free D3, visit try.easymelts.com slash onboys. That's try, T-R-Y dot easymelts, E-Z-M-E-L-T-S dot com forward slash on boys. And when we use that kind of task tone, which is often a little bit slower and which avoids certain kinds of emotional escalation, it's, it's, it enables us to bring up 
all kinds of important topics that register with them and that they actually remember and can connect with. And something that is almost unexpected that I have learned over, you know, 20 some odd years using this task tone is that it sounds respectful to kids. It sounds serious and respectful. And that serious part is something very important because the messaging that kids get from us is either very um, nurturing to the point of being alienating to them. It's like, oh, you know, it feels infantilizing. You're treating me like a little child who can't understand something. And so that kind of pushes them away. It, or then it sounds like, you know, the opposite is like too authoritarian. And it sounds like, you know, we're interrogating them and we're only after this information, but it lacks, it lacks any kind of respect. So I think that that boys, that, that tone comes first. And then when we follow that tone by focusing on topics that have high relevance to them, and we do something also a little bit counterintuitive is that we might speak a little bit over their heads age-wise so that we don't mm. kind of make everything too simple, but we make it like a little bit more complicated. We introduce a new word every now and then. We ask a question that we might think, well, this is only, you know, appropriate for a 14-year-old, but I'm talking to a 12-year-old. I think they like that. That feels respectful mm -hmm. and it feels like they're getting a promotion and I think they feel more engaged in the conversation. Janet, when you were reading this book and you were teaching those boys and you learned about this uh, task tone, what was it like for you trying to put this into practice? Because, you know, uh, Adam, what you're saying kind of goes against how we females tend to communicate, which is we're trying to get our emotion across to you. Right? <laughs> which was often frustration and irritability. It's just such a good reminder of, of that neutrality, of just being neutral rather than, than the ups and downs of emotions and communicating it to them, which they frankly don't care, or it's going to uh, turn them off. And there you go, then you're not communicating. I'm sure it took some practice to, to learn how to do it on a more consistent basis. I know when I talk to fellow parents of boys, a lot of the people I talk to know that that keeping the emotion out of it is the best way to handle a lot of these uh, topics, especially, you know, the more fraught topics, the, the really important ones. But in the moment, that can be really oh, hard. Yeah. And it takes it practice yeah. and you're going to mess it up and then you try again. Yeah. And Adam, I want to touch on too that, that you write about four areas that block boys from communicating with us. And I think these are so important for parents to hear about. Will you tell us about those? I think that it is true that boys are often trying to protect their privacy when they have, you know, important conversations. And what is the worst place to have these important conversations? It's the place where most families have them, which is at the kitchen table. We sit them right down at the kitchen table. We're staring deep into their eyes across the kitchen table, and we're asking these personal questions you know, about things that we found in their room or things mm -hmm. that we found on their phone or, you know, all those kinds of things. And it becomes so hard for them to kind of open up to us and discuss that in any kind of practical way. So one of the best places, perhaps the best place to have conversations with boys is in the car. 
-hmm. because there's less eye contact and it's the motion of the car makes it easier for them to relax and kind of talk about things. But I do think we have to begin with a sense that we, we may be invading their privacy to ask about personal things, which at their age feels like this is the stuff they want to protect. For us as adults, we might feel like, okay, this is just the routine stuff of growing up, but they don't have the benefit of that hindsight yet. Right now, mm -hmm. you know, who are their friends and why they like these friends and those kinds of issues are things that they might want to protect also having some sense of, of personal space so that you don't feel as though this is a, and this is a conflict. And especially I think during the pandemic where kids have been home and mm -hmm. I know that the families that I work with, the, the moms are often talking to me about finding things um, in, you know, the personal spaces of kids, whether it's their rooms or their backpacks or those kinds of things. And so uh, I think we have to be very careful about those kinds of things. And sometimes we, we straddle a very difficult uh, fence because we feel as though there are things that we have to know to keep kids safe. Mm -hmm. And it's our job as parents to find out about those things. And there are things that, you know, once we know them, the child feels violated in some way and then is reluctant to trust at some point in the future, right? When we use that task tone as we're kind of processing those kinds of boundary issues with kids, it's so much easier for them to stay in sync with us because they don't feel as though they're being put on the spot and they don't feel as though the emotion of the moment has escalated to a point where they're about to be, you know, quote unquote, busted for something because that's mm -hmm. what they kind of feel, right? Mm -hmm. And so in therapy, of course, one of the key things is that you're assuring kids that they have a sense of privacy and that there's going to be trust and that you'll, you know, discuss things with them before it kind of, it gets kind of, you know, broached with a parent. And I think that that goes a long way. I think we should have more of those kinds of conversations just the same way that we would with a friend, right? If you were talking with a friend and you were maybe friends with that person and their spouse, you would kind of want to assure that person that what they said to you is in confidence and that they could trust you to hold that confidence. So yeah. sometimes making a little bit more out of that rather than less goes a long way. Mm -hmm. A third thing is that whether we want to acknowledge it or not, much of what we say to kids is unbelievably boring to them. It's <laughs> unbelievably <incredibly> boring. boring. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. They we, don't care. <laughs> we, we say it out of love and we say it out of concern. We think these are the kind of important things, but it feels incredibly boring to them. So one of the best ways that we kind of accelerate conversations is that we focus on things that are of great personal relevance and interest to them. And we have to kind of know and be open to what that is. And I want to say something very important about this, ladies, and for your listeners, too, because I'm sure that, you know, you must have done podcasts about video games and, you know, yep. video game addiction. <laughs> yep. More than a Just few, a few. Probably, right? You know? <laughs> And I'm sure that in Wisconsin and in Portland, that it is the same kind of thing that happens around where I live, which is that children's hospitals have opened up units for video game addiction. And when I try to refer kids sometimes because they get into a real bad jam, there's not even an available bed. So, you know, I know that at least in New England, we have a big problem with kids getting like just over involved with video games. And we often as parents can be as bored by hearing about video games 
as they are about hearing about, you know, the virtues of friendship or the morale, morality of how you treat your sister or your brother or something like that. But the thing is, they love games. I don't just mean they like to play them and have a lot of fun with them. I mean, they love the games. They yep. understand the hierarchy and the architecture of the game in such an intimate way, the way you would understand only something that you truly loved. And mm -hmm. I don't think that if somebody loves something that much, that we can just push it to the side and not engage with it. And I am so full of empathy saying this to mothers in particular, because mothers have told me often that they are just terribly bored with talking about the games and hearing about the levels of the games and what what's going on. But the thing is, they love the games. And so we have to kind of make some space for being able to talk about the games and pay attention to it and let them show us how those things work. A couple of years ago, I put a, a Chromecast uh, uh, TV in my office because kids talk so often about games. I knew that I had to be able to look at a YouTube video of the game to get a general sense of how the game yeah. works. And then yeah. I'm not really part of their emotional and mental orbit. If I am not aware of the game, that's a big part of their life. Yes. That's what floats their boat. You know, right? Janet and I are kind of both <laughs> giggling over here. Um, and our longtime listeners will know that I have mentioned many times before, uh, not just how many conversations that I have listened to and been a part of, part of in air quotes about Minecraft and Fortnite. Oh, right. Also lawnmowers and snowblowers and snowmobiles. So many of these conversations. And I do it for the reason you said. It, it's so apparent that my kids are so into this. So that's yeah. got to mean something to them. But it was very helpful for me to hear you say that to our kids, this is as important as all these things that we adults think are important and our kids aren't interested in it. That was yeah. really helpful for me. And then another connection I made, I'm a reader. You know, I'm a writer for a career. I'm a reader for fun, always have been. For some reason in our culture, like if I want to talk to you about the book I'm reading, that's that's normal. We have book clubs for that. We applaud that. Teachers love that. But if I want to talk about the video game I'm playing, that mm -hmm. is looked down upon. That's an mm -hmm. interesting interesting observation and, and when you look at the physicality of boys you know one of the things that's obvious is that when i get kids in my office that are big strong athletic kids usually they are not the kids that have the issues with the games because they have found the opportunity for competition and achievement and recognition in Elsewhere. traditional sports activities but what about the kids who aren't built like that, right? They want the same opportunity to be recognized in their school, to compete, to be excellent at something, to hear their name spoken over the loudspeaker or whatever it is. They want that same opportunity. And so I, I have become a strong advocate for esports teams in middle schools and high schools where they get to wear jackets and hats and all the same stuff that other kids get because they want to have that recognition. I think that's what it is. We worry that there's going to be a whole generation of kids that, you know, wants to game into middle age or something like that. And there were certainly going to be some kids that like to do that because the games are so sophisticated and so engaging. 
But we got to worry about the present, which is that they want something that can kind of carry them through those critical developmental years to feel good at, you know, mm-hmm. two, two things. I want to, I just want to make sure I have a chance to say this ladies is that I'm of course a therapist and I feel like the two biggest issues that are missing in the therapy of boys is the issue of love and imagination. And I'm going to tell you how I mean those is that love is almost never spoken about. No one talks to boys about love. They don't experiment. They don't say who they love or how they love. They don't make the distinction between how I love a family member versus how I might love a friend or a teammate or somebody like that. They don't really talk about their love in any kind of romantic relationship. I mean, they will say that they like someone, but then the issue of love never kind of yeah. It doesn't it doesn't come to the surface. And so it's almost like there's a conspiracy that we just keep this out of relationships because we're worried of where it's going to lead to. The, the last thing we want is to recognize that boys are interested in sex and that they are incredibly interested in sex <laughs> and would like someone to talk to them about that more and that that yeah. should be kind of normalized as a part of their kind of growing up. And so that's that's kind of one issue. The other is imagination. And that is the idea that if we just enlarge the sense of what boys' lives can be for them by inviting imagination into the discussion, because where the discussion with boys is always focused on success, we are essentially thinking about and worrying about their economic productivity at some later point in their life. We're worried, are boys gonna be prepared to enter the economy? And so in the part of the country that I live in, people, of course, are really stressed about education. And I mean, I know that this is true everywhere as well, but I mean, everybody just talking so much about getting into the best school and the importance of that. And it all seems to be about the economic leverage that you'll have at some later point in your life. And it's as though the purpose of childhood is just preparation for adulthood when childhood is its own phase of life and that should be lived to the fullest for what it is. And for whatever reason, we have gotten ourselves into a very small, non-imaginative way of thinking about who people are and what their prospects uh, for a good life might be and what a good life actually is. We don't kind of talk about that in any kind of broad sense. And so the choices to kids seem very small and mostly about that thing we were talking about earlier, where it's just sit in my chair, get the best grades that I possibly can. Yeah. Is that the only purpose? I don't think so. Wow. This is so profound. I hope our listeners will really spend some time thinking about this because I think with the remote learning and this intensity that we're all feeling in the world, it is that place of, I want my kid to be successful. I want that. And, you know, we all want our kids to be successful, but this economic piece that you're bringing in is when we really look at it, that is that, of course, we want them to be happy, but there is that other piece of, we want them to be able to support themselves. And my parenting peers, our kids are in their thirties and there's been moments when it's like, yeah, she got that raise and now she can take care of herself or he got that, finally got that job he's been going to school for. And there is that place of like, oh, they're launched. They can take care of themselves. And yet when we really look at it, of course we want that for them, but we also want, you know, we want them to be in love. We want them to be happy and 
And yet how, how balanced are the conversations when they are 12, when they are 14 that, you know, we want that for them too, even though they might scoff at that at age 12 of like, we want you to, you know, be in a happy relationship and have kids if that's what you want. And, and I think that we don't talk about that. Do you talk about that with your kids, Jen? You know, it's, it's interesting. I don't know that we talk so much explicitly about that, but our kids have seen both their dad and I make some non-traditional and not necessarily the smartest from an economic perspective choices. So I have a degree in nursing. Longtime listeners will know that. I opted out of nursing. I pursued a career as a freelance writer because one, I love writing and that is what I'm really good at but also because that had the flexibility that would also allow me to spend meaningful time being with my kids, listening to those stories about Minecraft, Adam, helping them find and pursue their passions. For me, that allowed me to find that balance. Their dad has a degree in civil engineering. They saw him step away from that career and buy into a smoothie franchise. And he goes around and sells smoothies at events and he does some farming on the side because that is what brings him happiness and more balance into his life. So it's interesting, Adam, as you're talking, I've got my third son is a high school senior right now and he's grappling with this whole, you know, what do I do next year? And my kids are of the culture. So they get this message that, you know, college is the thing you should do. Maybe tech school, but college or tech school, those are the things you should do. And they are so actively questioning this so actively questioning like why why is this the next step is this going to lead to happiness i've got a 20 year old in college who still isn't sure and it's partly because what we've shown him is different than the Mm -hmm. party line i think i think the 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 effects of family experience are very powerful and overall i suspect that most families and schools see that there's kind of a, a metamorphosis that, that takes place at around age 16, because up until age 16, so often boys are so highly identified with parents that they plug away, they go into school and they do their best because they want to please their parents and they want all to be kind of copacetic you know, at home. But then something happens at around age 16 where one day kids wake up and they say, you know, why the heck am I doing this? <laughs> you know, right. I, don't, I don't really like trigonometry. I mean, I can do it if I force myself, but I don't really like this all that much. And why am I doing it? And they suddenly feel also a sense of, of some entitlement to kind of pursue those things that are of greatest interest to them. And that's the point at which we have to be ready to flex and to say, okay, let's have a dynamic, consequential conversation about what we can do to make sure that this life you're living reflects your core values and your, you know, enduring interests. I, I, and a parent's openness to that is critical, you know, because uh, mm-hmm. at, at that age, they're usually old enough that they can then convey those kinds of things and you can have a, a substantive conversation. <laughs> Janet and I are both just nodding. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's so easy to say that that's what you should do and to know that intellectually. And it can be very hard for us as parents to number one, let go of the idea that we know what is best for our son 
And sometimes the path our son wants to follow is one that is very different from anything that we are interested in or that we value. And that's a challenge that we have to deal with. You're so right. I, that, that's well said. And I, and that is the case, I think, for more families than not. That's not the exceptional case. That's the normal kind of thing that usually happens for people. So we shouldn't be surprised at it when it happens. But the moment when that kind of parting of ways happens, that's the moment when our empathy and our patience and our inquiry and our complete open-mindedness is critical because it sets the tone for all the important conversations to come through college and through their 20s and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. But if we're always trying to win an argument, you know, a, a years-long argument about what priorities should be or what you were always good at or what I always thought you should have done, oh, we just missed the mark. It's good. Yeah. That's the time, you know, where we got to do much more listening than talking. Because if you do that, if you if you engage in that arguing and you stay stuck, you are just building a wall and you are adding bricks to it between you and your son. You yeah. are almost guaranteeing that there will be distance afterwards because that's the only way he can follow his own path. Whereas if you take some deep breaths and vent to your friends and talk and do whatever you need to do, but let him find his way, you're creating closeness. I think that's true. And, and quite frankly, you know, Jen, most of us should be so lucky as to have kids that have a strong inclination yeah. one way or another when they reach that age. The more difficult case are the kind of adolescent kids that are affected by this sense of inertia. One of the, the other kind of most poorly understood issues when it comes to adolescent boys is that their depression is almost always an existential depression rather than a kind of chemical imbalance problem. Doesn't mean that medications can't be very effective, but let me explain what I mean is that they've lost their way and they don't know what they're doing. They have that moment where they kind of wake up and they say, none of this seems personally relevant to me. I don't know why I'm doing this. I feel unmotivated. And then we try to motivate them, which feels like a hostile takeover. Mm -hmm. Nobody really wants to be motivated kind of in that way. But they are all so desperate to know what it is that is important to them. And one, you know, one time I did a book tour in Australia some years ago, and I was talking to a group of 15 or 16 year old boys. And I asked them, how many of you guys feel that you are kind of called to do something in life or it's your job to pick the best uh, choice of what to do from say, you know, an array of options. And almost every kid that age will say that they think it's their responsibility to make a choice from an array of options. And I'm here to tell you ladies that I think that unfortunately that's a recipe for unhappiness. We have this view that, you know, especially, you know, the, the, the kind of privileges that come with being middle class is that there's no sense of real urgency or necessity in life. And I think many kids would be better off if they had to leave school to help support their families. They would enjoy life more. They'd feel a greater sense of purpose, a greater yeah. sense of calling. But we should, at the very least, talk to boys about the sense that there is a voice, there is a calling that they have, but the case for most kids that age is that their minds are occupied by chatter that interferes with what that call is. And so they never kind of get that tremendous kind of need to do something personal. And sometimes you can only discover that by trying to do different things. Mm -hmm. And since I've written about this so much, 
people often come to my office from very far away, you know, saying that, you know, our son has been thinking about this and he wants to do some type of purposeful work this summer. And I know that unfortunately that is always a lie. What he wants to do is spend his summer on his phone. <laughs> He's in a relationship with his iPhone and he wants to spend the summer really just getting it on with his phone. And so it's, uh, it's unfortunately not their priority. So I think that sometimes I will say to kids in that situation, well, look, you know, this is a very important decision. So you really have to think about it. I want you to give yourself 10 seconds. Because if you can't think of it in 10 seconds, you won't think of it in two weeks or four weeks or the whole yeah. summer. So it's better than if what parents do is give kind of a forced choice option. So for example, saying your dad and I have talked about, you know, several viable options that we could kind of see you being able to do. And so you pick the one of these that you like the best. And if you come up with something better that's viable, then we will absolutely switch to that thing. We're, we're all for it. If you have an idea, a viable idea, but in the absence of that, it's better to just get started with something. Get your yeah. kids started on doing something, something that's a little bit larger than themselves, something that is a kind of purposeful work rather than just a chore around the house. I like that you said viable option because some of our boys we know want to be the U YouTube star or the, you know, esports tournament winner. So viable. <laughs> viable is a is a good word there for sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm all for kids starting YouTube channels. Yeah. I know they all dream of being millionaire sure. uh, YouTube uh, impresarios. <laughs> but, you know, so start the YouTube channel because that's kind of creative and put some stuff on mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that can be kind of purposeful work. I, you know, absolutely. But it's, it's not, you know, when we think of it as career, it's like the amount of kids that want to be YouTube impresarios or uh, game designers, right? These are the two right. kind of things that there's so much fascination with. But, it, you know, I can see what you're saying, Vi viable options. So if that's what you want to do, okay, here's your, what's your plan? When are you planning on starting? What's your channel about? When are you going to be creating content? That is a plan versus just, I'm going to be a YouTube star. Right. Yeah. As long as you're working towards something and building your skills, you're learning. You are learning mm -hmm. more about yourself and about the world and where you fit in. I think that's right. And that comes right back to that kind of core idea that you were asking about earlier, Janet, the difference between form and content. Because in my practice, I am all the time saying that all of the good stuff in life comes from the form. And the great fake out is that it comes from the content, the stuff that comes and goes the details, all of that stuff that is so transient. It's the way that we go about living life. It's how we kind of address different challenges. It's the it's our momentum, right? That's the that's the opposite of what kids who are in late adolescence struggling with inertia, that's what they need is momentum. So the mm -hmm. form of life, how we go about experiencing our day to day is where all of the good stuff comes from. It's where the happiness comes from. Yeah. And sometimes when kids are really in a jam, when they're really inert, they just don't have any kind of get up and go. We have to kind of do it with them. Right. It doesn't matter how old they are. We don't say things like, well, I think they're just too old for this. I think sometimes we just get right down. We just we do it with them, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. One time many years ago, I worked in an adolescent unit of a psychiatric hospital with some of the most depressed kids that I've ever met in my life, boys and girls. And my job was to get them to come out of their room and participate in uh, group therapy activities and other kind of therapeutic activities. And instead, they'd be sitting in the dark, often 
you know, on the floor with their earbuds in, listening to music. And I began to make a deal with the kids that if you would just make your bed like really well, better than you've ever made it before, put a lot of care into something so that you have to pay attention to details. It's kind of a hands-on activity in some way. And I, I note that lots of people have talked about, for whatever reason, the importance of making your bed as a kind of life-changing activity that right. is a very positive way to start your day. It's a way of expressing care for yourself, of your life, of having some kind of regulation, self-regulation. So yeah, sometimes we have to do it with kids to get them jump started, but that's okay. That's that's a yeah. perfectly legit thing to do, no matter what the age is. Yeah. I sense that you have so much more wisdom and advice and content to share with us. And with I know form. you form <laughs> with form. I know you don't have all day. And I know that our listeners all have their own, you know, specific questions and situations that they're dealing with. Where can people access more of your work and find information that will help them solve their own parenting challenges? Well, probably my, is the best place is my website, like, you know, is dradamcox.com, D-R-A-D-A-M-C-O-X.com. And what I have there is an archive of newsletters that I wrote over 10 years on a wide range of topics. And if anybody wants to ask me a question, I do not stand on ceremony. I usually get right back to people and, uh, you know, happy to respond to things that, that might come up um, that, that people want to ask about. So, and the, the newest book, as you've been saying, is Cracking the Boy Code, which is kind of a summary of things that I've written about in other books. And so... Um, probably if there was going to be a single reference, that's the best one. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us and your worldwide gathering of wisdom about boys and your years and years of experience. And I know our listeners are appreciative as we are. Thank you so much. Well, you are lovely people, and I am glad to be with you today, and good luck with your podcast. Thanks for joining us today. This is On Boys, real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net and Janet Allison of boysalive.com. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details.